Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Jeff Wu with the Health Via Modern Nutrition Podcast, the H4Men Podcast. And I'm super excited to welcome Dr. Casey Mean. So she's a co-founder of one of the, what I would say one of the most exciting companies in the metabolic health space. It's a company called Levels. And they're really mainstreaming a really interesting technology that we've talked about on this program before, which is continuous glucose monitoring. But I think the larger picture to me is that in the future, there will be a real-time dashboard of key metabolic markers, key health markers. And I really see Levels enabling that future for all of us. So Casey, welcome to the program. Great to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. Thrilled to be here. Yeah. So clearly a lot of overlapping interests. And before we go down the Levels rabbit hole in the future of continuous biomarker tracking, starting with glucose, we always like to start from the beginning. So you're a practicing clinician, a Stanford trained doctor. What was little Casey like? How did you decide to go venture into the medical realm? Oh man, little Casey was a fiery ball of energy. <laughs> um, so, you know, my, my interest in, in going into healthcare and medicine really started, it started really in high school. I've always been fascinated by how the human body works and how to achieve sort of optimal health. And I was at Stanford as an undergrad right at the height of the Human Genome Project and when direct-to-consumer genetics were really starting to come online. So sort of early 2000s, mid-2000s. So the beauty of coming to medicine during that time was that we were really thinking about the interaction between the environment and genetic expression. You know, our genes are a blueprint, but Health is really the interaction between that blueprint and our environmental exposures. And, and that is what really determines our outcomes. So in many ways, being in this milieu of personalized genetics and genetic testing as I came into medicine was a very empowering perspective because it's it's it, it, nothing is deterministic. You know, we're not fated to have certain outcomes. It's really the interaction between our everyday choices, exposures, and inputs and that gene that really determine health. So, you know, flash forward, I did my medical school training also at Stanford, and then I went on to head a neck surgery residency. And in my surgical residency, I was treating and operating on diseases of the ear, nose, and throat. And I was struck by how so many conditions I was treating were fundamentally rooted in chronic inflammation. It was all this, it was sinusitis, laryngitis, thyroiditis, all the itises, which in medicine is a suffix that means inflammation. And it caused me to step back and say, you know, why is there so much chronic inflammation at play? And why are we just reaching for our prescription pads for, for all these heavy duty steroids uh, to quell the immune system instead of asking what's causing inflammation and what's the root cause? I was becoming more and more aware of how we're understanding that inflammation is at the root cause of so many conditions, not just ENT conditions, but also many of the chronic conditions that are plaguing our country today, things like heart disease, stroke, Alzheimer's, dementia, obesity, diabetes. And you know, we know that a lot of the inputs, again, the environmental inputs and exposures that our body has, so the food we eat, the amount of stress we're under, how much or how little sleep we're getting, the environmental toxins we're exposed to in our food, water, and air, the amount of sleep we're getting, all of these things can generate chronic inflammation. So, you know, of course, we can prescribe steroids. Of course, we can go to the operating room and bust a hole in the sinus and suck the pus out. But that doesn't actually change the underlying core physiology of inflammation because you can't operate on the immune system. And so that was really the big transition for me was becoming kind of obsessively interested in understanding the root causes of these core pathways that lead to so many diseases and then how to mitigate those in hopes of 
keeping people you know, out of the operating room and keeping people off chronic medications. And what we know is that one of the key fundamental triggers of inflammation in the body is dysregulated blood sugar and metabolic dysfunction. And unfortunately, our modern society makes it extremely difficult to escape metabolic dysfunction. It's thought that about 88% of American adults have metabolic dysfunction. And this underlies nearly all of the chronic conditions that we're seeing today in our country. And nine of the 10 leading causes of death in the US are exacerbated by high blood sugar or metabolic dysfunction. So that really was kind of my journey from, you know, this early stages of my career and interests of, you know, personalized medicine and the interaction between environment and, you know, our body and, and then really thinking through more deeply, how do we, how do we attack as physicians and as a healthcare system, the core fundamental physiologic pathways that are leading to multifarious conditions. So we can move away from the reactive whack-a-mole type medicine that we're practicing right now, where we consider every single disease, this different isolated entity and treat accordingly, and actually focus on really high value medicine, where we focus on the links between diseases, the core physiology. And since so many of those, those core linking physiologies like metabolic dysfunction, insulin resistance, chronic inflammation, since these are fundamentally rooted in the choices that we make every day, day in and day out with regards to food, sleep, stress, exercise, movement, it really comes down to how do we inspire people to make smart, personalized choices day in and day out that create conditions in the body that optimize these pathways. So that's kind of my journey and how you know I went from sort of, I would say, mainstream conventional medicine to really focusing on directly empowering individuals with personal health information to make better choices to improve fundamental health. Hey guys, this is Jeff Wu interrupting my podcast for a special offer, a special announcement for you. As you might know, HVMN just launched the new Keto Food Bar and they're yummy, they're delicious, and I wanna make a special personal offer for you to give you a discount to get those into your hands. So for a limited time only, use the discount code Jeff10. That's G-E-O-F-F number one, number zero, Jeff10 for a 10% discount on the Keto Food Bar on HVMN.com. We got Mexican hot chocolate, one of my personal favorites. We got vanilla shortbread, we got chocolate chunk, and of course, we got the everything bagel, which is legit savory, garlicky, oniony. And these have become staples in my own personal life. I like to eat this with a cup of coffee for breakfast. I've been using the Mexican hot chocolate, the vanilla, as grab-and-go bars when I'm biking, when I'm out on the town, when it's not easy for me to eat healthy, eat keto. So these are certified organic. They actually are yummy. They aren't these weird synthetic artificial tasting bars you might see that are keto compliant but have a bunch of fake IMOs and things that actually spike glycemic response. And of course, while they're also certified organic and they actually taste good, these have been tested on continuous glucose monitors. So they actually have flat, glycemic response on your blood sugar. So essentially, it's a, a fasting mimetic, but we're still delivering almost 300 calories of healthy fat and 12 grams of healthy protein and grass-fed collagen. These are legit. I'm so excited for you to try them and use my personal discount code, Jeff10, to get a special 10% discount. So check it out and enjoy and back to the program. I think I have the privilege of speaking with a, a lot of doctors that are forward thinking like yourself, but it feels like for you know 90% of the doctors, they're mainly functioning as technicians who are kind of caught up in the healthcare incentives infrastructure. And I'm just curious to get your take on this. 
is there some structural issues with how healthcare is done in America where people just avoid like the primal root causes that you're trying to tackle here with metabolic health versus which I think are just like just much more hot fixes, right? Like grabbing that script, grabbing that shortcut. You know, is it because that there's just like so much pressure to pay off medical school debt? Is it just because it's so much easier to just get get paid by payers to just write that script? Like what is that diagnosis here? And second part is obviously like I think most 90% of the people that I think go into medicine want to help people. But like what made you take an extra leap forward to be like, hey, I'm going to put myself out of like the norm of being a day-to-day standard hospitalist or a day-to-day practitioner and get into, I would say, like a health technology broader platform with something like Levels? Yeah. So I think the question here is really like, how did we get here? And why are we practicing in a way that is unfortunately very focused on just, you know, avoidance of death and managing disease rather than proactively making people well? So I think there's a lot of reasons. And a lot of it comes down to the fact of really healthcare economics. For the past 60 or 70 years, we've had a system that really focuses on fragmenting the body. We look at things in very individual systems, and we have a medical billing system that is based on codes. And fundamentally, codes are a huge problem in terms of why we've gotten to where we are. Because to bill something and to make money for a service in healthcare, you have to code it and label it and then submit a claim for that. So what that means is that you are basically creating these minutia little micro diagnoses about all these different things, and they're considered sort of separate things. And so we're focusing on the downstream effects of physiologic processes, as opposed to the physiologic processes themselves. You cannot code for metabolic dysfunction. You cannot code for chronic inflammation, and you, but you can code for, you know, a very specific type of psoriasis. And so what happens is we focus on these downstream manifestations of, of chronic processes as opposed to the actual processes themselves. And that leads to this very siloed system where we're very fragmented, we're a very highly specialized system, and we're not focusing on core fundamental health. And we also, you know, there's there's a misincentive here. So if in a fee-for-service system where you get paid for doing something, paid for treating pharmaceutical companies make money by selling prescriptions, hospitals make money by selling surgeries, then a very, very healthy patient is a very, very bad customer. And certainly, I don't think this 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 type of uh, malaligned incentives makes it into the actual daily thought process of a doctor. But the reality is systems do actually drive behavior. And so you know, when our livelihood is dependent on treating patients who are sick, it creates a very backwards incentive structure for making people investing in high value interventions that may be low cost that keep people very, very healthy and very much out of the pharmacies, out of the hospitals, out of the operating rooms. So I think that two people describe this better than almost anyone. And one is Dr. Mark Hyman. His book, Food Fix, talks about really how we've gotten to our problems today. And then Dr. Um, Lustig, who wrote The Hacking of the American Mind, which talks about how we've got into this place where we're super focused on reactionary medicine, not about proactive health. And some of the things that are talked about in both of these books really get into all the sort of like wide array of sort of issues around the web of why we are just the sickest, um, you know, Western nation, why we're spending $4 trillion on healthcare and we, our life expectancy is going down. And briefly, these things range from one, just cultural norms regarding nutrition and what is comfort food and that sort of socialization of unhealthy foods. 
We have relentless food marketing and advertising. We have a very unregulated food marketing system that is one of the only countries that actually still advertises to children with unhealthy, ultra-processed foods. We've got the food system that focuses on you know, super addictive foods that take you to your bliss point. So actually hijack our reward circuitry in the brain to make things as addictive or more addictive than drugs of abuse. We've got a public policy system that actually financially incentivizes and bolsters the production and purchasing of disease proning foods. So our farm bills spend hundreds of millions of dollars on uh, promoting the production of food that directly causes disease. So corn, uh, wheat, soy that are largely are turned into animal feed or refined seed oils. And then we've also got, you know, our, our healthcare economics that we talked about and very much a fee for service system that promotes doing bias towards action, drugs and surgery. And we've got a built environment and a culture that highly promotes sedentary behavior. We've also got a digital world that keeps us really trapped in artificial light and using our devices, staying sedentary, creates a system of low-grade chronic st- stress of like pings and messages. And we the, the last thing I would mention is that we don't really have any good feedback on our daily choices in terms of knowing what's good or bad for us. Nutrition is very much an open loop system. We make choices, but we don't actually know how they're affecting us for very long periods of time. You know, we might get a fasting glucose test once a year or cholesterol test once a year, but that makes it very difficult to actually think back and say, what were the foods that were actually causing the problem? So lack of sort of immediate feedback on on things, very important environmental inputs like nutrition, I think is also a problem. So those are some of the factors at play. And, you know, I think there's a lot of hope. Uh, there's a lot of people thinking about how to change the system to make it healthier. We're moving towards a value-based care system that's going to pay for outcomes over cost. So outcomes will be a part of how we get paid. So I think that's going to change the incentive system a bit. But yeah, highly recommend those two books I mentioned for any listeners. And it's a complex issue um, of how we kind of got here. 100%. And I like to always start talking from an infrastructural or an incentives perspective, because I very much like the quote, show me the incentive and I'll show you the results. Because I think there are more, I would say extreme or more conspiracy tinfoil hats wearing people in the community here who are like, oh, this is like some kind of new world order to like make people sick and profit. I don't think it's to that extreme where there's like crazy conspiracies. I think everyone's trying to do their best but because the game is so localized in terms of incentives, right? Like we want to optimize doctors for this kind of outcome, but now we're paying them by scripts and codes, as you were mentioning. Well, like it's everyone needs to pay their bills at some point. So it's like, okay, it's not unexpected that they would go for insulin or a surgery versus nutrition counseling, which is so much more labor intensive and so much less reimbursed by the payer or the healthcare provider and insurance company. So I, I think it's like refreshing to hear that. I think it sounds like, I mean, it's like, it's like a very clearly articulated perspective. I think it's, uh, I haven't, I've talked to many doctors on this issue and I think you just summarized the situation very, very nicely. So kudos to your very, very clear thinking on the space. So let's, let's go into the mechanism. So I think that's where our bread and butter is. And let's start from the basics here. So it looked like as you were on the front lines, on the surgery side, you wanted to solve a more primal root cause. What caused you to go down the metabolic health path? And then why was blood glucose the key thing to focus on? And let's talk about the mechanism. Like how does high blood glucose or high variance or these big like standard deviation spikes and, and drops, what is that basic biological explanation of why this is bad for inflammation and some of these downstream killers of Americans, right? Like I think when you talk about cardiovascular disease, cancer, 
and cognitive impairment, right? Like those are like the basically like three of the top five killers of Americans today. Why do these all have metabolic roots? Or, or what is the theory? Or what is the hypothesis that these have some sort of metabolic implication? Yeah. So two questions there. I think the first one is really like what what was the big drive to like jump ship from surgery and then go towards trying to fix metabolic health? And then then what are the what why is this such an important pathway to devote time and energy to? So in terms of the first question, the decision of leaving surgery to sort of start a mission of eradicating metabolic dysfunction in this country really came from stepping back and reflecting and and sort of looking at my life and realizing, you know, we have one life. I have one shot here and I love being a physician. I love medicine. I love science. How do I want to most serve the world? Like what, what are, how am I going to most serve and utilize my experiences, my thoughts, what I've synthesized throughout these experiences to create a better world. You can do that through surgery. Surgery is a beautiful art. There's surgery, there's a place for surgery in the world. But in terms of scaling solutions that are going to improve health, well-being, happiness in the world, the surgery is not going to do that. Surgery is a very high touch one-to-one interaction. It's highly reactive and it doesn't empower people. It's reactive. It's the doctor doing something to the patient. And I think people are happy and thrive more when they feel like they have agency over their lives and and control and direction in, in this life. And so I wanted to make sure that how I was helping people was empowering them, not just doing to them. And then in terms of metabolic health, this one for me was such an important nut to crack as a physician and to scale solutions to, to fix this because of how pervasive it is, one, how much it's related to the many of the chronic health conditions we're seeing, two, and three, because it's readily fixable. It's reversible. It is, there's hope in it. It's not like it's a one-way street. For, so for those three reasons, it was just like, this is what we have to, this is what we have to solve. I think if we made our country metabolically healthy, inspired people to make choices that generated metabolic health and improved metabolic health, we'd see our healthcare costs plummet to a, a, a mere fraction of what they are today. We would see a happier, healthier, more emotionally regulated, fitter, more productive society. And we'd see a fraction of the, the very painful chronic conditions that we see today. So why is this the case? What are the mechanisms? So fundamentally, our metabolism is how we produce energy from our food and our environment. So we make this energy by converting sugar and fat into something we can actually use, namely things like ATP, which is like the currency that our cells can actually use. And we have trillions of cells in our body. And the sheer reality is that every single one needs energy to function. And when there's an energetic deficit, when they're not using energy properly, what happens is cells dysfunction, then tissues dysfunction, and then systems symptoms arise and the disease arises. But really a lot of that comes down to the cells don't have the energy to work. So the metabolic process of energy production is a core fundamental pathway of every cell in the body. And when we don't do it well, we see disease emerge. When we do see it working well, when we have the energetic capacity to meet the stressors and the demands of our lives, we thrive. We see stable energy. We see vigor. We see mental clarity. We see athletic endurance. We see stable mood. We see good memory. We see healthy skin. We see all the things we want. And we see, of course, the avoidance of future chronic disease. So it's really at the nexus of current performance and then avoidance of future issues. And when we we eat carbohydrates that are converted to glucose, our bodies 
as I'm sure many of your listeners know, they have to release a lot of insulin to get that glucose to be taken into the cells. And over time, if we eat in such a way that our glucose is persistently high in the bloodstream, our body has to pump out more and more of this insulin into our bloodstream and to, to drive that, that sugar into cells. And over time, the cells become a little fed up. They're like, oh my God, there's so much sugar coming in here. We have to process all of this in the mitochondria and we can't do it. So the cells become resistant to that insulin and block the glucose from coming in. And that's the process of insulin resistance. And over time, the pancreas pumps out more insulin to try and overcompensate. And so now you have high insulin, you have high glucose, and this relates to a number of problems. So when insulin's high, because it's a signal that the body has enough glucose for energy, it says we don't need fat for energy. We've got tons of glucose around. So it blocks us from efficiently burning fat for fuel. And so what happens is we end up storing fat, storing glucose as fat, and we become fat. So insulin resistance you know, is, is very tied in with why we have a chronic obesity epidemic in our country. And we have 74% of Americans that are overweight and obese. You know, and, and the other thing that, so that's insulin being high, blocking fat oxidation. And the second thing is that glucose alone in the bloodstream causes problems in its own right. Hyperglycemia, high blood sugar drives chronic inflammation. It drives oxidative stress and it drives glycation. So these are three processes that are really problematic for our cells. Inflammation, of course, being upregulation of the immune system, release of inflammatory cytokines that over time can be damaging to the body when they're unregulated. Oxidative stress being the production of too many free radicals, these reactive species in the bodies with unpaired electrons that can go around and basically that unpaired electron will bind with proteins and fat and DNA and cause dysfunction. And then glycation being the formation of advanced glycation end products, which is where too much glucose in the bloodstream literally goes around and sticks to things, sticks to proteins like collagen, causes change in the actual shape of these structures in the body, and that causes dysfunction. So you've got the insulin pathway that's problematic. You've got the glucose pathway via these three other pathways that are is problematic. And all of this fundamentally comes down to the fact that we are overloading our body with this substrate glucose, and it has these downstream effects. We are eating probably around 100 times more refined sugar and carbohydrates than we were 100 years ago. The average American was eating like a pound or two maybe of refined sugar per year about 100 years ago. And we're eating on average 150 pounds now. Our poor little bodies have to process every single one of those molecules and our hormones have to be released to help process that. And we can't do it. So we're breaking down and the irony is that we have too much energetic substrate in the body, but we actually have an energy deficit in our cells. And so tissue is breaking down. And you can imagine if this is happening in every cell type in the body, any symptom could emerge. If there's an energy deficit in the brain, it could look like Alzheimer's dementia. It could look like brain fog. It could look like chronic fatigue. It could look like chronic pain. It could look like depression. It could look like anxiety. All conditions related to dysregulated blood sugar. Is this happening in the ovary? It could look like polycystic ovarian syndrome, insulin resistance of the ovaries, leading cause of infertility in our country. It's happening in the blood vessels. It could look like heart disease. If it's happening in the penis, it looks like erectile dysfunction, which is at this point thought to be a key indicator of metabolic dysfunction, erectile dysfunction. So, you know, any, you know, name any system any in the body. And I can tell you, you know, the, the way that it's related to dysregulated glucose and metabolic dysfunction, because we're dealing with these core fundamental energetic pathways. And one of the key ones that is interesting right now and is so prescient is that this also happens in our immune cells. 
it happens when our immune cells are exposed to too much blood sugar, they become dysfunctional. And so we are seeing right now with COVID that one of the key indicators of worse COVID mortality or morbidity is underlying blood sugar dysregulation, metabolic disease, or obesity. And this is not a surprise really at all. We've known for a long time that dysregulated blood sugar impairs immune function. And COVID is just highlighting that for us. So, you know, of course, social distancing, hand sanitizers, masks, these are things that, you know, prevent us from being exposed to the virus. But I think really more of a focus on actually improving our own biologic resilience to the virus and helping people understand that it is very simple to control blood sugar. And it could be one of the best, highest value things we could do to improve our biologic resilience to the to the virus. So that's sort of the, the, the web and the world of why metabolic dysfunction is such a key thing to focus on. And again, it's so hopeful because we can actually do something about it rapidly. Verta Health, a company that's actually approaching diabetes through a really novel platform, they've shown that in 10 weeks, they can take people with full-fledged diabetes and get them to a non-diabetic blood sugar level. 10 weeks. And essentially, they're administering a ketogenic diet. Right. Exactly. It's simple and coaching. Yeah. It's like ketogenic diet and coaching and like accountability. Exactly. And yeah, that, that's like a bit, I mean, credit to that team for like showing that this digital therapeutic or this lifestyle intervention is just as powerful, if not more powerful than insulin and metformin, which is awesome. Absolutely. Like reduce the substrate in the body, which is AKA refined carbs and glucose, reduce the influx of that. That's one side of things. The second side is building a body that processes glucose effectively. So that's a little bit more complicated. That's keeping our micronutrient status on point, keeping our microbiome on point, making sure we have the building blocks in the body to actually process glucose effectively. That's keeping our cortisol and our stress down, getting enough sleep so that our hormonal milieu is effective for metabolism. So it's it's two-sided. It's sort of building our body with healthy habits and then also reducing the substrate going in of glucose. And together, anyone can improve their metabolic function. So, but that's sort of, that's why I decided to focus on this issue because it's just high value. It's high leverage. It's achievable. We have digital tools that can help people do it. And that to me made it very easy to walk in and, and leave surgery and, and focus on this. And I'm, I'm very glad that I did. Awesome. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, like just from a historic perspective, interesting to talk about the evolution of the food system and how and why sugar was so prized in the 1800s, right? I think literally if you think about history, humans enslaved other humans to produce more sugar, right? It, it, like That was like a big part of the slave trade. And it was just like interesting to realize that it was such a addictive, tasty commodity that we had to be, you know, one of like, I guess like one of the worst travails of, of human culture evolution was, you know, and other people to like manufacture sugar essentially, which I think is interesting from a historical cultural perspective. And then going all the way till now, which is interesting from a COVID perspective, I almost want to unpack each of these things and, and talk about them in a little bit more detail. I mean, just from a historic perspective, I think the reason why I think what you guys are doing at Levels is so interesting is that we need to evolve the nutrition food production system. And I think the mission of HVMN is to modernize and almost like bring ancestral best practice in, in a lens of science, right? So I think that's just like, okay, let's actually have foods that make sense. And then to what I always believed was important was the closed loop, as he talked about the open loop of just having like the thing with food, because it's so continuous, such a everyday, multiple times a day practice, it's hard to track whether each individual dose does anything to you. But over time, I think just given the way our systems are set up, 
you maybe have a snapshot checkpoint every year if you're like on top of your stuff, right? Like realistically, I think a lot of people aren't even seeing their doctor once a year and getting their bloods done. So I think where levels, I think is part of that future is that you are enabling people to actually be accountable, actually be metrics driven on their day-to-day metabolic health, which I think is so powerful in terms of just that feedback loop. I think but just like admit what is true, which is that humans are very bad at long-term planning. Like we're not very intuitive of our long-term chronic health. If you're giving people a number that's like, hey, this bar or this drink or this meal was really, really bad for your glycemic response, therefore leading to all the different downstream like kind of endpoints that you were just mentioning, hey, you can actually do something immediately the next day or the next meal to correct that. I think that's, that is very, very powerful. So. I think, I think one of the interesting things is that when someone says this solves everything, like oftentimes that leads to like, this person's full of shit. Cause like, it's like, if it, if it does everything, it's like too good to be true. But I think if you actually dive into the metabolism, because metabolism, as you're mentioning, every single cell in our body must generate ATP from some substrate. Like it is like, yes, it does everything because it is essential. It is essential to everything. So I think that's like that kind of a funny conversation where it's like, if this has implications potentially towards Alzheimer's, diabetes, cancer, that's literally in, in like an overweight obesity. That's literally like some of the top five, 10 killers of Americans, right? It's like, it almost does everything. And how do you address that? Or, or, or is that something like, yes, it is so central and that's why it's so high leverage. Like we need to be educating people more. Or do you feel sometimes defensive about the fact that if something is quote unquote too good to be true, does that feel weird to you? Because I think that's just like an interesting conversation, I think, within the nutrition blogosphere. And I think a lot of our listeners are, I think, have seen really, really good personal results here. And as people are advocating and bringing people into this community, into this lifestyle, lower carbohydrate consumption, sometimes like I don't want our movement to look like kind of like zealots, where it's like you have like the crazy vegan people or the crazy carnivore people that seem a little bit too religious. Versus like, hey, this is based on sensible, rational, like constrained claims rather than like, hey, this is like the new best religion. How do you try to balance that? Do you find that there is like a tension there? It's a great question. So I think that, so I'd step back and say eating low carb or reducing glucose intake is definitely not the panacea for good health. There, like, there's no question that doing that behavior is not going to generate good health. It is necessary, but not sufficient for that. So I don't, I don't see, I see glucose and the power of glucose is that it's a readout that has many different inputs that are all important for generating holistic good health. So what goes into what your glucose is doing? You know, if you have a continuous glucose monitor on, you're essentially seeing this little movie, this line of what's happening with your glucose all day. That is not the result of just whether you had a cookie or not a cookie, refined carbs or not. It is a result of so many complex physiologic processes that are driven by many of the different behaviors and the micro choices we make thousands of times a day. So some of the key things that go into a glucose readout in terms of behaviors or potential inputs is the amount of sleep we're getting, the amount of stress we're under, the food we're choosing to eat, the combinations, how we're pairing food, the time when we're eating food per day. So sleep, stress, food, how much physical activity we're doing each day, how sedentary are, how much we're moving our major muscle groups, not only 
if we're doing it, but how frequently during the day we're doing it. So those are some choice-based things. It's also critically related to the microbiome. The microbiome makes metabolic byproducts that are critical to our metabolic health. It's our micronutrient status. Every single cell in the body is just filled with cellular machinery that requires micronutrient building blocks to both be built and to function. These micronutrients like vitamins and minerals and omega-3 fats and things like this, these are all like either building blocks, structural elements, or locks and keys to make these things function. We're just this big, very complex machine. So micronutrients, we talk a lot about macros, but micronutrients, things like manganese, zinc, magnesium, vitamin C, B vitamins, carnitine, these are all critical for these processes to work. So I think that where it starts feeling a little potentially like, I don't want to say like charlatany or something like that is when we say like, oh, if you just keep glucose down, if you just don't eat glucose, you're going to be healthy. That's not true. It is one aspect of a very complex set of physiology. But what I love about tracking glucose is that it becomes this centralizing force that around which revolves so many of the things we have to do each day in order to be healthy. So that's that's sort of how I would simply put that. And so yeah, I'll, I'll pause there. But but yeah, that's kind of how one way to sort of frame that. Yeah, because I think that I, I, I'm, I'm exactly in the same, I think, I think, position as you are in the sense that in terms of something that's like, very non controversial and a very low hanging fruit, reducing refined carbohydrate intake is like very, very easy to accomplish. But then I think it's like, how do you balance the nuance in terms of if you're looking to be an elite athlete, some carbohydrate that's fast transport might be useful. If you're having higher exercise load, how are you balancing that all out? And especially, at least from the HVMN context, I know that a lot of elite athletes and elite military operators are starting to look at CGMs as a performance tool. Those use cases are very, very different than someone who's overweight looking to lose weight versus someone that's healthy and just looking to optimize longevity. And I think I think we as a community need to give people a very easy entry point to enter the community, which is like, hey, just reduce carbohydrate intake, right? Cut out sugar, cut out candy bars, cut out like Coca-Cola, but also very quickly educate people on like the broad system where these are all inputs and sugar in very select use cases can be beneficial for a specific endpoint, right? If this is like, you look like trying to win an Olympic gold medal or you're doing very heavy powerlifting or, you know, doing something that's very energy anaerobically intensive, sugar might be a useful substrate for you. And I think it's hopefully elevating the conversation where there's no like evil or not evil substrate. These are just all chemicals in foods, right? And like, they're all useful to solve different problems. And I would say that a lot of the problems that we as a society have solved is curing famine. You know, one of my favorite observations that if you look at what killed people in the 19th century, it was famine. It was famine and war, right? What's killing people today is all the chronic diseases that we just talked about. So I think we essentially solved the famine condition. Of course, like we have to say there's certain third world countries that people are still starving, but that's mainly a transportation and like an economics question rather than like a capacity question, right? There are literally enough shelf-stable carbohydrates everywhere <laughs> to feed everyone. It's a little bit of a distribution problem. But I think that in turn has reflected a, an issue in our food system where now the problem is overconsumption, all these energy overabundance issues that are creating all these chronic disease conditions. So again, I think there is like that very short, easy, clean story, but I hopefully we can move that conversation towards a little bit of a nuance. And I think another conversation, or maybe if we shift topics here, is COVID, right? And I think it's, it is weird to me that 
our public health policy officials don't ever talk about health and lifestyle interventions. And it's like, I think, I think you say exactly right, which is that, of course, do all the social distancing, all the standard policy that is very commonly dis disseminated by our public health, public officials. But when they talk about improving metabolic health, just giving it a little bit more sunlight and improving vitamin D status, which also has very, very high correlation or association with negative or positive outcomes with COVID. It's interesting that, that all the lifestyle stuff is omitted from discussion, even though these are very, very cheap, very, very like easy, low hanging fruit. I'm curious to dive into that topic and, and get your thoughts there. Are public health policy officials saying that if we talk about lifestyle stuff, it just feels too hokey? Like, why don't they tell people, hey, doing a little bit of exercise, you know, improving metabolic health, getting some sun to improve vitamin D status? That like people, I would say in the like the lifestyle or like the nutrition community talk about this. And I think there's definitely just like a huge, almost conspiratorial like tone because our public health officials just omit like 90% of what people can do to like actually improve the metabolic health. Yeah, you bring up great points. And it is, I think for us in this sort of nutrition focused community, it is, it is like sort of wildly perplexing to sort of step back and think it's been almost 10 months since this virus started. And I have not seen a, a sort of governing medical body come out and and put down a hard line on, hey, every person in America, we need to be taking personal accountability for our daily choices to improve our metabolic health. And we need to do it for ourselves, our families, and our community. Not even just asking people to sort of step up a little bit with their choices that are evidence-based for improving metabolic health rapidly, but also changing the systems in a creative way to make this easier. I mean... What if every McDonald's all of a sudden, you know, what if we subsidize foods differently in our country rapidly changed it so that we were increasing production of healthy foods that we know have compounds that are associated with improved outcomes with COVID, things like selenium and zinc and like you said, vitamin D. Why aren't we thinking that way? And like, yeah, like, and these are not like, we need a bajillion dollars to like make these things happen, right? Like we've spent literally trillions of dollars on COVID at this point. Like I, I kind of step back and think like, you know, hey, I mean, we could have probably sent, you know, organic, low carb, daily harvest harvest bowls to, you know, this direct to consumer frozen food company that creates all organic vegetable filled delicious foods to every single American, you know, for for weeks that it probably would have cost it less than we don't even that less than what we've spent. You know, we could be creating absolutely wide access to coaching. We could be increasing distribution and access to continuous glucose monitors. So, you know, if glucose is the key driver. Of, of worse COVID outcomes. And we know that that is not just for diabetic individuals. The research actually shows that even in non-diabetic individuals, if you present to the hospital with a higher than normal glucose levels, even in the absence of a prior di diagnosis of diabetes, significantly higher likelihood of dying in the hospital from COVID. This is a research that came out in November. So it's not just diabetic individuals, it's even non-diabetic individuals. And when we look at pre-diabetics in this country, which is about 100 million Americans, 90% of people with pre-diabetes don't know they have pre-diabetes. So we are just walking around clueless to a biomarker that is readily trackable. There is technology that is pretty cheap to ch check this continuously, continuous glucose monitors. We have companies like Levels that actually interpret that data for people and help them improve their metrics rapidly. And we've not a part of the conversation. I actually published a paper in the journal Metabolism in April that reviewed the first hundred or so papers on metabolic health and COVID saying, you know, calling for this type of action. And we haven't seen really any of it come to fruition. If we really wanted to see positive movement in this pandemic, every billboard in America 
would have five tips for reducing your blood glucose levels and and educating people on why it's important. But we are not seeing that. Um, and I think it comes back to a lot of the systems issues. I think it also comes down to the fact that maybe there's just a lack of faith that at scale, we can bind together and really do this and, and change things, which I think is is a flawed way of looking at things. I think this is a time for us to be really creative as a healthcare community and as a, as a society. You know, yes, it is true that most diets fail. It is true that when a doctor recommends a dietary intervention, it very rarely is followed sustainably by a patient. There have been, but that, that is in part because we are not tapping into you know, smart, personalized tools that we have available to really drive behavior change. And this is what Levels is all about. Like we are focused on on utilizing digital technology to help people hack those behavior change loops that make it fun and engaging and satisfying to actually do these things that many people consider hard. People think it's hard to give up sugar. People think it's hard to improve your diet. But when you're, you know, having really engaged with a digital product that actually is handing you on a silver platter your current data and then telling you, you know, all these different ways that you can improve it and supporting you in that, I think it just it's a creative way to approach it, but we're not we're not really thinking that way. Like how yet yes, you know, many people fail at improving their metabolic health and dieting, but there are so many technologies, especially in the digital health world, that are helping people make really big changes and making people more aware of their health. So how can we think bigger? I think that's that's where we need to go. And we actually have to think this way because everyone thinks, oh, when the vaccine comes, everything's going to be better. But the reality is we are still a biochemically fragile society that does not have the bioenergetic or the molecular capacity to deal with threats and to deal with stressors. Stressors being things like a virus, infection, lack of sleep, et cetera. We are not biochemically resilient as a society. And that's for all the reasons that we've talked about so far. We are in many ways broken machines. And so the next pandemic that comes down the line, the next flu season that comes down the line, the same thing's going to happen. And we're going to be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe how bad this is. When in fact, the real pandemic that we are fighting right now is metabolic disease, and yet we're not talking about it. So even with the flu, even with influenza, which kills, I think, around fifty to 70,000 people per year, so not insignificant, people who have blood sugar dysregulation are five times more likely to end up on a ventilator or die from the flu. Okay, so this is not like COVID's the first disease to discriminate against people with metabolic disease. They all do. People with Diabetes, a cause of death is opportunistic bacterial infections. You know, this is why people get infections in their feet that can cause systemic infections and lead to death. Bacteria and viruses prey on people with metabolic dysfunction. So this is not a COVID thing. It's a, it will always be a thing. So as long, until we focus really on the metabolic health in a creative new way with different incentives, different behavior change approaches, I think we're just going to continue to, to, you know, stumble along in a very victim-focused mindset that is not good for anyone. Yep. Yeah, I think that's a good astute point, which is that even the vaccine, which is, I think, a huge medical innovation, you know, I think it's going to do a lot of good and save a lot of lives. It's still just a Band-Aid, right? We're not solving, again, the root primal cause in terms of just improving metabolic overall resiliency of our population. So I know our audience is pretty quantitative. So what are these benchmarks or thresholds for fasted blood glucose that you're kind of categorizing for what people should be targeting for maximum resiliency? Uh, obviously, I think some of the mainline 
numbers, over 100 uh, milligrams per deciliter fasted is considered pre-diabetic. If you're passing 120 or 130, that's considered full-blown type 2 diabetic. As you're parsing out the data, what are the thresholds or the segments that you're seeing in terms of if people are looking to improve their metabolic health, what should their targets be? Yeah. So all the things I'm about to say are based on my personal review of the literature and not actually evidence-based recommendations that are being like uh, promoted in clinical practice. Cool. So not yeah, not medical advice, just like scientific interpretation. Yeah. Uh, don't 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 make us get in trouble. Okay. Yeah. So, but but I, I think it's important to dig deeper into the research, and I'm really thrilled to share some of it with people because I think it's really interesting. So. I'll talk about fasting glucose and I'll talk about post-meal glucose. So standard criteria for glucose levels based on ADA guidelines is that normal, quote unquote, normal fasting glucose means a value under 100 milligrams per deciliter after not consuming calories for eight hours. So you walk into the doctor's office, you get your fasting glucose check once a year. If it's 99, they tell you that you're normal. So this does not necessarily tell us what is optimal. Okay. So I consider an optimal fasting glucose range to actually be between 72 and 85 milligrams per deciliter. So quite a bit lower than just all comers under 100. And that's based on a number of research studies that show that as fasting glucose increases, even when it's in the normal range, there's an increased risk of health problems like diabetes and heart disease. So a couple of studies to mention. So First was a study where men whose fasting glucose was greater than 85 milligrams per deciliter had a significantly higher mortality uh, rate from cardiovascular disease than men with blood sugars less than 85. So that was like just sort of a dichotomy. Above 85, higher risk of cardiovascular mortality, lower than 85. All with normal blood sugar, quote unquote, but a big difference there. The second is that people with fasting glucose uh, levels in the high normal range, they considered this in the study to be 95 to 99 milligrams per deciliter, had significantly increased cardiovascular disease risk when compared to people whose levels remained below 80. Okay, so 95 to 99, higher risk, below 80, much lower risk. We also see that children with fasting glucose levels between 86 and 99 milligrams per deciliter have double the risk of developing prediabetes and type 2 diabetes as adults when compared with children whose levels were less than 86. So this is fascinating. You know, we've got this whole box of normal, but 86 to 99, twice the risk of developing diabetes and obesity than if they kept it below 86. So why in God's name would we tell people to shoot for 99 when we should be telling people to shoot for less than 86? I mean, there's, I've got a bunch of these, but like, you know, people with fasting glucose between 91 and 99 um, were found to have a threefold higher increase in the risk of type 2 diabetes compared with people who had levels less than 83. So there's a lot of these studies look at quartiles or quintiles of like in these different categories within normal, what's the increased odds ratio. And it's just, it's literally every study that's looked at this. And there are about six. And I am happy to send these to you in the show notes. So because of all that, I've kind of put that all together and said, yes, yeah, certainly not shooting for the 90s, um, 72 to 85 is really where we want to be. That's my personal opinion. Now let's talk about postprandial, like post-meal glucose levels. So according to the International Diabetes Federation guidelines, they say that non-diabetic people should have a glucose level no higher than 140 milligrams per deciliter after meals, and that glucose should return to pre-meal levels within two to three hours. So basically it's saying, don't go above 140 and get down to your premium levels within two to three hours. So that's IDF. The American Diabetes Association has guidelines for diagnosing diabetes. And this is done through an oral glucose tolerance test where people 
slammed this disgusting drink called a uh, uh, glucola, which is 75 grams of oral glucose. And they drink that and then they check their blood glucose over the next it's two sodas. Yeah. Ugh, it's it's just it's so gross and it's like a lot of sugar it's a lot it's a ton of sugar with no protein or fat or fiber in there so it's really just like hitting you straight with glucose and if glucose levels are less than 140 at two hours after the drink so it could go up to 250 during the test but if it's below 140 at the two hour time point then the individual is considered normal okay so this to me feels way, way too lenient because there's actually been like many, many studies where they've actually just slapped continuous glucose monitors on healthy, young, non-diabetic people and looked at their glucose levels throughout 24-hour periods. And they find that actually post-meal glucose tends to be based on the study between about uh, 99 and like 135. Like that's where the major- the vast majority of healthy non-diabetic people will be and that they will peak between 46 minutes to an hour and then come come quickly back down to normal. So the idea that we should be going like way up above 140 and then coming back to 140 by two hours, like, no, we should probably be going up to like 99 or like low hundreds and coming back within like an hour and a half. And, and so based on all this kind of research, my personal recommendation is that I always shoot for a post-meal glucose less than 110, ideally less than 100. Definitely no more than a 30 milligram per deciliter increase from my pre-meal levels. And should absolutely return to baseline within two hours. If you're not returning to baseline within two hours, that's a sign that you might be insulin resistant because like you're not actually getting the glucose up into the cells. And I will say that's sort of my review of the literature. If you look, there's a, there's a few other physicians who have written about this, you know, on their own blogs or in podcasts. And I've kind of tried to compile everyone that I've sort of seen what they said. And the people who have written about this and are are very much, I would say, in somewhat concordance with what I'm saying is Peter Tia, Mark Hyman, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Chris Kresser, and Dr. Molly Malouf, who are all metabolic health experts. I think Dr. Atia says that he aims to keep his glucose around an average of 90 milligrams per deciliter and never wants to go really more than 10 above that. So that's like basically staying between 90 and 100. Sarah Gottfried talks about wanting to keep her glucose for her patients between 70 and 85 and keeping average glucose around about like 95, 97. And then I think Dr. Hyman says that our fasting glucose should always be below 80 and never rise above 110 or 120 and on the post-meal check. So kind of in that same web of what I'm talking about. And I think we're all reading the same literature. So that's probably why. But what we need is for researchers to be studying healthy non-diabetic individuals, the healthiest in the population, and looking at 24-hour CGM glucose profiles, what's happening after meals, what is the average, what is the fasting, what is the area under the curve after meals, mapping that on to underlying metabolic biomarkers. So like, how does this type of curve relate to fasting insulin levels? How does this type of curve relate to our triglycerides and other metabolic markers? So we can start to understand how these CGM data sets actually map on to underlying metabolic health and then start to do some clinical research showing, okay, if you can keep within these ranges, what are the actual clinical outcomes? And if we improve our CGM metrics, how does that actually improve our clinical outcomes? That is where I think the next five years of research is going to be uh, five to 10 years in terms of really longevity focused physician research. And I am super excited to see this happen and and be a part of it. You know, Levels is investing. We just closed our seed round of funding and we're investing a lot of money in supporting clinical researchers who want to answer these questions because 
we are dealing with a country that is 88% metabolically dysfunctional. We have 128 million Americans with prediabetes or diabetes. We have 74% of Americans are overweight or obese. And we actually do not know as physicians what to recommend people to keep their blood glucose at. That is absolutely crazy. Yeah. And I think you're hitting something that's spot on that I think is non-obvious for a lot of lay listeners or folks who just haven't like studied what are the benchmarks. So I spend a lot of time with high performance athletes and uh, performance coaches, and they almost throw away the recommendations of like the bars that you get from Quest or LabCorp in terms of like their biomarker values of like, what is a good fasting glucose or what is a good insulin status? Because where is that data from? It's literally 25 to 75 percentile of the average American person which as we just realized is like basically metabolically dysfunctional. So if you're benchmarking on that norm, which is like sick, then like what are we even targeting? So I think that is something interesting where in the, at least what I've observed in the elite performance space, they literally are trying to like set like actual biomarkers that are relevant to the high performance communities community, because that's just basically different from like, the average American, which is sick and overweight and obese, like the average Americans probably, again, it's hitting metabolic dysfunction, probably pre-diabetic and probably has an extra 50 pounds on them. And like that is not the target that we should be aiming for. So in some sense, why are the constraints so loose? Is it because the traditional medis- medical infrastructure can't optimize everyone? Is it just like, okay, if we're just trying to tr- like max everyone to like 110 after a, a post prandial glucose, that's like impossible. We've given up. So we're going to like let people just get up to 140 or, or surpass it. Do you think it's less sophistication or is it, do you think that the folks that the powers may be understand that they should be targeting a higher threshold, but because it's so far from what they think is practical that they've given up and they're like, hey, if you're just like not clearly screwed up, like you're okay. Like, have we just given up in terms of like the standards? Or is it like, hey, we need people like ourselves and the work you're doing to like, hey, this is not that, like we can all do it. Like, do we just need like more leaders inspiring and challenging the norms here. Yes, for sure. But I think a lot of the ways we've got into these more lenient numbers just has to do with the way that biomedical research is designed and implemented. So if we look at something like the history of how a diagnostic test like hemoglobin A1C came about, it actually sheds some light onto this. So hemoglobin A1C is a blood test that you can get that tells you about your sort of 90-day average for your glucose levels. But it's not a great test for a lot of reasons. It's dependent on the lifespan of your red blood cells. It's looking at how much sugar is stuck to your red blood cells, basically. So that's variable between people. You might have a decent hemoglobin A1C, like a non-diabetic, but that actually tells you nothing about how much you were going up or down in terms of variability during those three months and, and glycemic variability, how much spikes and dips we have in our glucose is a key predictor of health outcomes. We do not want mountains and valleys, we want flat and stable for our glucose and hemoglobin C doesn't tell us anything about that. So you could have someone you can imagine who let's say their average glucose is 100 and and their A1C reflects that they could just be always around 100 all the time. Or they could be someone who goes from 150 to 75 to 150 to 75. The average might be the same, but that person with the big spikes and dips is going to be much less healthy. Yeah. So why is that problematic? If you're recovering quickly, you know, one person could, hey, like, yeah, my, my HB one, like my hemoglobin one AC is A1C is fine. Why is the spike problematic? Why is having hyperglycemia problematic uh, on these bursts? Yeah. So that spike is a signal to the body to release insulin. And so every time you spike, your pancreas is having to create and secrete 
insulin, which then help makes you, you know, allows you to take that glucose out of the bloodstream into the cells. So there's a hormonal cascade that is ultimately going to, if happening over and over and over again, generate insulin resistance, like we talked about before. And that's going to create problems with baseline hyperinsulinemia and the cells basically not being able to take up glucose effectively. And over time, will just make your baseline glucose levels rise if you spike and dip too much. So that's number one. The second is that when you spike high, which the average American is spiking high all the time because the vast majority of our calories come from refined carbohydrates and sugars. And we are have been told to snack all the, you know, have six meals a day, small meals, but these are high carbohydrates. So we're basically spiking our insulin all day. So with these spikes and dips, in that high insulin state, we are never giving our bodies the opportunity to be in a low insulin state, which is where fat burning happens. So that's problem number two. The third problem is that a big spike will lead to a big insulin response, which will then sometimes overcompensate. You'll actually suck too much glucose out of the bloodstream and have what's called reactive hypoglycemia, where you go up, but you crash down. And reactive hypoglycemia, when you get low after a big high, because basically an exaggerated insulin response, what happens in that time of reactive hypoglycemia, we see a lot of the subjective pain points of life will see anxiety. You could have a post, like a slump, like your energy is low at that time, how people often, you know, they'll eat a big meal and then feel like really tired afterwards. It's actually been associated a big spike and then dip has been associated with reduced acute memory recall, like fact recall. And so they've done tests with people where they like put their glucose really high and have them try and remember words and things like this, verbal memory, and they do worse. So reactive hypoglycemia, we want to avoid that. A lot of these sort of like ups and downs in our day, mood lability, energy lability, et cetera, memory lability, like actually I think is just directly related to our blood sugar going all over the place. So stable blood sugar is, is in, in many ways promotes a stable life, subjective experience of life. And then the last thing is that that spike in its own right can cause glucose-related physiology, the inflammation, the oxidative stress, the glycation. So you do not want to spike. You want to stay as flat and stable as possible. And you know, hemoglobin A1C doesn't capture any of that. And we categorize people into these thresholds of hemoglobin A1C. So like less than 5.7% of, of your hemoglobin in your red blood cells being glycated is normal, like 5.7 to 6.4% pre-diabetic 6.5 and above diabetic. And that wasn't because like we were being lenient when we made these, these, you know, when the scientific community made these categories, it's that we're dealing with population health. We're not dealing with individuals in our research. And they basically found that like, okay, below this level of A1C, we see a certain amount of clinical outcomes, the clinical outcomes, bad clinical outcomes go up between 5.7 and 6.4, and they go way up after 6.5. So that's how we're going to categorize people. And I think the original research in A1C was actually done in diabetic retinopathy. So how much people developed retinopathy, which is small vessel disease of the retina and the eye, one of the leading causes of preventable blindness in the world. So I believe that was the clinical outcome they were looking at in the 70s and 80s when they were doing this research. It's pretty advanced these states. So I think it is pretty interesting that you're benchmarking on some on blindness, which is like a very severe end, end point of diabetes. So like you theoretically should be much, much more constrained if you just want general metabolic health. Like even getting to 5.7 is like, whoa. Like you're going, that's, that's blindness. That's like amputation level. <laughs> There's a great book by Todd Rose. He's a Harvard professor who wrote The End of Average that talks a lot about how our, sort of the way we do research and the way we lump things and the way we approach bell curves. What happens is that you end up basically doing some bad research. Like by trying to optimize for the average within different groups, you actually lose a lot of people. It's very interesting. And I, you know, no, I think there was no, there's no malintent here. It's really just trying to be efficient in our system and capture, you know, help, you know, capture people into groups so we can triage and uh, allocate resources effectively. But it's not working. It's not working. 
and we are extremely metabolic dysfunctional. And, you know, I think that, that a lot of people are moving in this direction of more a personalized approach to diagnostics and the, the interest in the medical community and biowearables, things like whoop and aura and eight sleep and levels and Apple watch and, and all these biometric trackers is that, you know, imagine if we were able to just see our glucose 24 hours a day, understand how food and lifestyle activities were affecting our glucose, see what our glycemic variability is every day and learn how to improve it. See what our fasting glucose every day, learn how to improve it. See how different foods are affecting our post-meal response, learn how to improve it. See how stress, exercise, little too little sleep is affecting our glucose, figure out how to optimize those. You would never in your entire life have to walk into the doctor's office again and get a surprise about your metabolic health. If you're doing this and tracking it, it changes the whole dynamic with healthcare. You're never going to walk into the doctor's office and have them drop a bomb on you about your metabolic health because you know, and you have tools, you have a toolbox to optimize it. And the interesting thing is, is that for each person, it's going to be a different plan based on their biochemical reality. So, you know, you and I could eat the exact same banana and have wildly different glucose responses because we have different microbiomes and we have different insulin sensitivity. So what might be a great metabolic choice for you that's going to generate pretty low insulin response might be a terrible one for me. And so, you know, in that situation where you're going to the doctor and let's say they do say you have a problem and they say, hey, you need to eat healthier and exercise more. What in the heck does that mean? It, it's it's actually not a great, you know, kudos to doctors who who say that to their patients and who even in any way promote lifestyle and dietary improvements. But we know now that it really needs to be more personalized than that. And so seeing your own data, seeing how individual foods are affecting you, how stress affects your glucose, not just some blanket statement. I think that's where we're moving. And it's incredibly empowering to individuals, changes the dynamic with the healthcare system, and kind of takes us to, in some ways, like a post-marketing economy where it's it doesn't really matter what the tribalistic voices in the nutrition and healthcare space say, like you have to be vegan, you have to be carnivore, you have to be keto, you have to be paleo, you have to be low carb. It's it doesn't matter anymore because it's you're seeing exactly how those different things are affecting your body. Like Quaker Oats, it's gonna be a long time before they're required to not put on their on their packaging that they're not heart healthy, which they're not. But it currently Quaker Oats say heart healthy, high fiber, whole grain food. Well, the majority of our customers who eat instant oatmeal or oat milk see a gigantic glucose spike. And that glycemic variability we know is associated with endothelial dysfunction and poor cardiometabolic outcomes. So people are doing that day in and day out. It is unequivocally unhealthy for them if they're having a huge spike after it. And so I think we're going to see that we move towards, like I said, a post-marketing kind of type of environment where it's it's you don't have to take at face value a lot of these claims that are being made because you actually can just see how it affects you. And in a lot of ways that makes life easier and it makes it more peaceful because as opposed to constant trial and error and trust and shame around making bad decisions and and just yo-yoing and just all of this misattribution that we do in our lives and just like the very lagging indicators we have for knowing whether the choices we're making are actually affecting us positively, we instantly see if we're making good choices. We instantly see how we should move forward. And that takes a lot of the emotionality. It breaks a lot of the the neurologic feedback loops that can be maladaptive and behavior change. So like you were talking about earlier, the more we can link an action with a reaction in a one-to-one relationship and in a short period of time, the more we overcome these profound, you know, dopaminergic reward pathways that are kind of being hijacked by our modern system and the general confusion that exists in the nutritional world right now. Yeah. Let's, let's just like shift topics and just talk about levels specifically and like why the CGM and 
how you guys are making it so much more accessible. I know that just through the course of our podcast, we've experimented a lot with CGMs, but it's always been pretty bootleg in terms of getting access to these devices. And I think one of the things that I was so excited about and full disclosure, I'm a tiny little investor and big fan of what you guys are doing. We, we should just talk about why and how you guys are just elevating the space and just, I think, at the forefront of changing this game. And as a part of, you know, helping make this accessible to more people, I know that one of the biggest questions that I've gotten over the years is, what's the best way to get a CGM? Can I talk to, can you have a doctor you can refer that might prescribe this to me? And it's always been like, I have some doctor friends, but they're like not set up to do telehealth. They're not set up to like onboard like 500,000 people, just like paying them just to get a CGM that might not be diabetic. They just want to be optimizing. And you guys have, are essentially solving that problem. So one, we have a special offer for our HVM and podcast listeners. So I know you guys are like just crushing it. You guys have what, like over 60,000 people on the wait list. So for folks that are listening on, on this program, this conversation with Dr. Means, uh, we have a special link, levels.link slash HVMN, levels, L-E-V-E-L-S dot L-I-N-K slash HVMN. We'll skip you to the front of the line. So Dr. Casey and her team can help you out here. So one, check that link out. We'll have in the show notes. But two, like, what was the world like before Levels? I mean, essentially, my experience was either finding kind of off-shelf eBay kind of bootleg access to CGMs or two, getting like a very like forward-thinking doctor to basically prescribe this to you because it's considered a medical device in the United States. So what have you guys built that makes this much, much easier for everyone to actually tap into? Yeah. So I think a lot of people have had experiences like yours where they're just like, how in the world do I get someone to prescribe this to me? And the reason for that is because continuous glucose monitors, they've been around for like over a decade and they are FDA approved for ty- for management of type one and type two diabetes. So these have been game changing for the diabetic community as opposed to just pricking your finger three or four times a day to get some information about your glucose so that you can manage your medications. This for, you know, allows for this like movie as opposed to a snapshot of your glucose and just gives you so much more insight, but still is mainly indicated for diabetics for medication management. So like how to dose insulin and things like that. It was never really meant or thought to be a behavior change tool. Like how could this data stream actually inform our choices and reinforce feedback loops that are positive? So Levels brings this technology, this hardware to the mainstream and, and creates software that helps people really be empowered to understand their current level of metabolic health and then make choices to improve it. So we basically take out the guesswork of what's the perfect diet for you and and empower people with this real-time continuous metabolic data to understand how food's affecting your body. So the way we built that is that our members of the program, they engage in what's called a, a metabolic awareness journey. It's one month and that involves three things. It involves a telemedicine consultation. So we have a telemedicine network where people are evaluated with a very um, brief consultation online, filling in some answers, written answers to questions that's reviewed by a doctor in their state. And if they are approved for continuous glucose monitor, then our partner pharmacy sends them two continuous glucose monitors in a levels box with performance covers that and and that gets sent to their door. And then they get access to the levels app, which interprets all the data and helps you make better decisions. The sensors each last on the arm for 14 days. So you get two sensors, which makes up the month. And these sensors take a glucose reading 
every 15 minutes automatically. You don't have to do anything. And then you just scan your phone to your sensor and it pulls in all those every 15 minute glucose readings. And so you can kind of think of it like a Fitbit or a Whoop for glucose. And you know what it does is it creates that closed loop biofeedback and, and helps people move towards that flat and stable glucose level that we know is associated with current and, and future wellness. And, and so the way we recommend people approach the month is the first month, the first week of the program, just like do all your normal stuff, eat what you're normally eating and kind of just like see how your normal diet is affecting you. Some people like to just jump into trying to optimize, but it's kind of interesting to see like how everything you've been doing has been affecting you. We talked about oatmeal and how that's been a big surprise for a lot of people, people who every morning at 11am reach for their second cup of coffee because they think they're tired because of lack of coffee or not enough sleep. And they see that their oatmeal spiked their glucose to like 200, crash down to 50. And that's when they feel tired. And then all of a sudden they switch to like, you know, eggs and avocado and and their energy is completely stable in the morning. So you just start to see those surprises that are fascinating. You also start to see like hidden things that have been totally screwing you without knowing it. So like the ketchups, the salad dressings, the sugar that's hidden in, in bread. And it just, it's, it's everywhere. There's like, you know, 56 different names for sugar. They're hidden all throughout these products that have no need for sugar. I mean, it's literally filling our peanut butter. It's, it's crazy. You have to be like a, a hunter sleuth in the grocery store to avoid added sugar and or like order your ketchup on Amazon through Primal Kitchen, which is what I do because there's not a single ketchup in Whole Foods that doesn't have added sugar. And so you start just like seeing surprises. So that's week one. Week two and three, we help people through like a bunch of challenges and explorations to help them understand how to build their metabolic toolbox. So like, what is less sleep versus more sleep due to your glucose? What is deep breathing when you're stressed due to your glucose compared with just like letting the stress take you and kind of engaging with it? How does walking after meals for 20 minutes change your glucose response? How does pairing vinegar or cinnamon substances known to be insulin sensitizers, how do those impact your post-meal glucose spike? You know, doing a lot of these different trials to start building out your metabolic awareness and your metabolic toolbox. And then week four, I think it's fun to really try and optimize. So like put everything you've learned into like keeping your glucose is flat and stable. And then at the end of the month, people get like a really beautiful detailed report of kind of everything they did and how things improved, you know, their time and range over the course of four weeks, their average glucose, their post-meal responses. And the app is really cool. It has a lot, lot of cool features that are fun to play with. There's a compare feature where you can like do different trials of different things and see how they affect you. So someone an awesome customer basically tried like four or five different sports bars that they were eating around their workouts and saw exactly how each sports bar was affecting them and then could graph it all on one graph really easily in the app. And they found that like a cliff bar, like put them up to over 200 on their glucose and a number of the bars shot them up, but there were a few bars. Yeah. Cliff bars are like candy bars. It's crazy. Yeah. We, we had someone do uh, another athlete who has been drinking Gatorade for years and they did Gatorade and they did the, um, LMNT, um, sports drink, which has no sugar, but still has like a lot of electrolytes and whatnot. And the LMNT like was completely flat. The Gatorade again, put them to 200. Like this is yes. We all understand you want to replete your glycogen and your muscles so you can build strength, da 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 da. Like, but that is a no human body needs to be up at 200 to replenish glycogen. I'd suggest you probably need like the, the mild little bump in your glucose to like fully replete your glycogen. We only have like four grams of sugar in our entire bloodstream. We do not need 37 grams of sugar from a Gatorade. And to see that and realize that, oh my God, this thing that I thought was fueling me 
is actually causing all this collateral damage and is totally unnecessary. It's been a game changer for a lot of the athletes in our program. So that's the compare feature. There's also an activity catalog that shows you all your scores. We score meals. We don't just tell people like, you know, raw number of glucose data, but we actually give them a letter grade or um, a grade one through 10 on each of their meals, which takes into account a number of these metrics about a glucose curve, like area under the curve and change from baseline and puts them into one simple metric to understand. So you're like, this dinner was a 10 this dinner was a three and you can start to understand like what's, what's affecting you. So that's some of the stuff that, you know, people will find in the app and, you know, I'm biased, but I think it's so much fun. I've been wearing it for 18 months and my life has certainly changed. Yeah. I think it's just, it's super valuable, even just to invest for one month, just to get that baseline understanding of yourself. I remember this was probably three, four years ago, just wearing a CGM and I had an overnight flight, like a red-eye flight to from California to Boston. And then I decided to have just like a, 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 like, like a, like a splurge meal or a cheat meal. I got a double Whopper fries, Coca-Cola at the Logan Boston airport. And I was measuring my blood sugar. It was like literally like 250, something like ridiculously high. I'm like, and again, I think we all intuitively know that that's probably not the best, healthiest meal, but just seeing that number and you're like, wow. This is redonkulously bad for my meta, like my glycemic response. And I think it's compounded by like not sleeping, pretty high stress from traveling, and then just a mega carbohydrate bolus from Coca-Cola fries and, and a double Whopper. It, I think that's like very powerful, right? Cause I think we all know the theoretical, what we know from just like uh, common sense, but just seeing that personal number, your personal number your personal glycemic response i think it's very very powerful it's very very like visceral to you so i think just even from that level it's very very powerful and then too i think like when we're developing our keto food bars like we were using levels we're using cgms the benchmark and i think i that feels like that will be the future of nutrition of food where why if these are very quantitative measurable impacts on our physiology let's design and build foods nutrition protocols to actually integrate with on the other other side like let's get the, let's actually test these things so i think like this i i think this is like the, the combination of like thoughtful produced foods and then actually grading them and actually have that personalized to your personal physiology and i think i'm just curious to hear any interesting surprising anecdotes in terms of like non-obvious or obvious things that people might have, you might have picked up from either yourself or from from the community of numbers, like there, it's I just seen very interesting results for like I think grapes seem very very high in terms of glycemic response. Like blueberries are much like better in terms of glycemic response. I think some things are like non-obvious. I know that. For certain ethnicities, like white rice seems to do better for some folks than others. Like there, I mean, this was like a very like well-published Israeli cell paper that showed that like glycemic response to the same foods is pretty variable across different populations. So anything that's like particularly interesting that has been amusing or interesting that might be non-obvious. Oh my gosh, so many things. Truly, I feel like I could talk about this for the next five hours because our, you know, and our customer, our, our members are posting about this stuff constantly on Twitter and Instagram. And like just to see what people are learning and how so much of it both reinforces what's in the research literature, but also sometimes is a little different than the, that's in the research literature. It is like beyond fascinating to me, but some, some really fun ones that I think are maybe worth mentioning. So 
I mean, the, the one about the, like mentioning about the pro athletes and like realizing like that what they're doing to fuel their bodies might be hurting. That's been really interesting to me to see how people actually are changing their fueling to optimize recovery and performance. I think also with athletics, we're seeing this interesting movement, which you, I know you've covered on your blog and in podcasts like carb cycling. And I think you guys have like the best blog post on carb cycling of any I've read. Um, I recommend it to everyone. But this idea of like the low carb athlete and being able to tap into different energetic fuel substrates in perform in, in workouts. And so, you know, with the standard American diet and how we're eating, we're basically forcing our bodies to be totally reliant on glucose during our athletic performance. And if we actually can train in a lower glucose state, we can start to adapt to actually use fat for fuel more efficiently during our training. And so actually using CGM as a tool to learn where you're at in terms of your glucose during training and during towards during actual competition can help athletes adapt to being better fat burners um, during their training. And this, this has a lot of implications for endurance athletes. And you can imagine if you start to be able to burn fat more efficiently, especially at higher intensities where we tend to be more glucose burners, if you can shift that more, that, that fat burning curve to the right, where you're actually able to burn more fat at higher VO2 maxes, heart rates, intensities, we open up this whole extra source of energy and become less dependent on exogenous glucose during our training. So, you know, we have lots of athletes who have used levels and who are sort of more in the low carb, you know, Jeff Volick, Steve Finney type athletics camp who have really used this to enhance their low carb training. And they still might use glucose on performance days to kind of get an extra bump, but they've actually adapted their body to be able to also use fat. So we've got pro runners who are like tr- doing fasted marathons, like 26 miles, even in our own company, our head of customer success is an incredible athlete, Mike DiDonato. He's doing fasted marathons frequently. And you see fascinating data when you're doing that, but they've adapted to become like amazing fat burners. So that's one thing I would kind of mention. Um, so training. The second is a lot of people are fascinated by seeing their glucose actually go up on their sensors during high intensity interval training. So in high intensity interval training, we know that like stress of that activity causes the liver to actually quickly dump a lot of glucose into the bloodstream, break down glycogen, produce more glucose, put it in the bloodstream for the muscles. So even if you're fasted, you actually might see a glucose uh, sort of spike while you're doing high intensity training. And that's actually not a bad thing. It's not exogenous glucose that you have to like release insulin and process. It is glucose to feed a need. So there's an energetic need that you're meeting and it's kind of emptying your tank. It's emptying your, it's, it's moving through your stored glucose and glycogen so that you're actually, you know, you're getting closer to fat burning and to these metabolic adaptations when you see that happen during a high intensity workout. So people are pretty fascinated by that. Maybe the interject there. I was, yeah, I think that's like something that's like non-obvious. And remember I was doing a seven day water fast and I was exercising through it and it's pretty amazing to see that the body's fairly adaptable in terms of gluconeogenesis and creating glucose from, from fat. And I was still elevating blood glucose even when I was exercising like, you know, five days into a water fast. So it is pretty remarkable how adaptable the, the human body is to generate substrate as needed for different types of demands you're, you're demanding from the body. It's so true. And it doesn't happen overnight. Like the body upregulates and downregulates things and genetic expression changes as we put these stressors or these new inputs on the body. So we have to think of it as like, 
we like to call it metabolic fitness. You know, there's metabolic flexibility, which is the ability to use fat or glucose based on different substrate availability. We are very not metabolically flexible in our country because we've been only sort of creating conditions where our body uses glucose, never really having the opportunity to use fat which is why most people in America are fat. And so metabolic fitness, we think about it as like, this is like, just like lifting weights day after day, we'll start to see muscles grow over the course of weeks and months. Similar with this, if you work these pathways and by pathways, I mean, keeping glucose down, burning through your glucose when you're working out, and then having to actually flip on the switches for fatty acid oxidation and the mitochondria over time, those pathways, those receptors, those channels, it all becomes stronger. And we, it just becomes second nature so to speak, in ourselves to be able to do this. So it's fitness. It is is adaptations. This requires doing this sort of like over and over. It's not going to be easy the first day that you do it when your body's a slave to glucose. So yeah. So I think it's 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 great to see that that feedback and also to know that like when you're hungry, maybe during a workout or in the morning or whatever, and you're like, oh my god, I'm hypoglycemic. I'm so hungry. You look at your glucose and you're like, oh, I'm actually like firmly in the 80s or like the 90s. I'm, I'm not actually hypoglycemic. What I am is that I'm not able to use another source of energy and I don't have, I haven't eaten this morning and I'm not able to burn fat. And so I'm hangry and I'm feeling panicked. And like that just goes away. I think, I think so many keto people find this that when you tap into fat burning, this idea that like, oh my God, I haven't eaten in a few hours. I'm, I, I need some food. It just, it actually just disappears because you have this, you've, you know, hundreds of hours worth of energy stored as fat in your body that we're just not able to access. So I think that's like an awesome survey or overview in terms of like some of the insights that levels can offer. I, I think again, it just, these are very powerful. And I think again, just that personal vis data is so visceral that even if you're just like the most disciplined person ever, if it's not your own numbers, I feel like it's still a little bit abstract. And I, what I found for myself, it's like, I just want to make infrastructure assistance and make it easy for me to be the way that I want to live or be disciplined. And I think Levels is, a, is an awesome tool to do that. And if it's just like get that first month in, just to understand like the core, core basic, I think it's so helpful. Like I think it, it would not surprise me that in five, 10 years, everyone has Levels for like at least a month just so they can get educated on, on how their body responds to different stimulus, right? And I think that would be a good service for all of us to understand like, hey, you know, these types of foods make me feel this way and also quantitatively benchmark in this way. So it's not just like some intuition thing, which is like very hard to control, it's some placebo effect, you got real numbers. So I think even just from that level, I would say that almost everyone can get value, like literally everyone can get value from, from something like this. Thank you so much for saying that. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm a true believer in terms of just like, just the overall space. And I think that's what part of the reason why I'm excited to talk to you and also you know, figuring out a way to get early access or skip the wait list for our listeners. Because I think it's it's super valuable. So again, that link is levels.link slash HVMN. So as we wrap up here, any like thoughts? I mean, I think just the overall conversation, I think you're just super well spoken on the space. I mean, are you on Twitter, Instagram? Where do people follow along? I know that Levels has its also has a great blog as well. Where do people keep tuning in? Yeah. So I think certainly follow us at levels on Instagram and Twitter. So that's just at levels and just like seeing people's experiments and what they're learning, I think is absolutely fascinating. I am on Twitter and Instagram at Dr. Casey's Kitchen. So Dr. Casey's Kitchen. And I'm actually, I'm plant-based. So I, I, I read a lot about sort of like the intersection between plants and plant carbohydrates and how to optimize that through everything we've been talking about to basically get the benefits of plants without the collateral damage of plants, which can be 
a lot of high glucose spikes and whatnot. So that's something I talk a lot about using plant protein and fat and things like that to really create a good context for glucose processing in the body. Our blog, like you mentioned, levelshealth.com slash blog is an amazing source of information on, on all of these topics. We have incredible guest physician writers, PhD writers, Dom D'Agostino, Ben Bickman, number of great uh, doctors writing on the blog about really forward thinking ways to approach this from a systems and personal level and a lot of member testimonials to kind of see how people have benefited from glucose monitoring technology. So that's the way to find us. And I'm, yeah, I'm so glad that you've shared the link as well with people that allows people to skip the wait list and join our, our beta program. And we'd love to hear from anyone. So awesome. Yeah, I'm excited to get this out there. And I think there's like a lot of meat for part two. So if our community has questions, I think one of the interesting areas to potentially have, you know, pencil in a part two is talking about plant-based keto. Because I think that's definitely an interesting, I would say, flashpoint within the just overall low-carb community, plant-based, carnivore-based. And it's my perspective. I'm pretty agnostic. I think you know, there's pros and cons for different approach, including environmental factors and morality factors. I think it's always like a fun conversation to have. So we'll save that for part two. So again, Casey, thank you for taking the time to come on our program and uh, talk to you soon. Thanks so much, Jeff. 